The house at 2648 West Grand Boulevard in Detroit looks very much like it did back in the old days. Its bricks are painted white and it's trim blue. The same blue found on the logos of hats, t-shirts, and mouse pads you can find in the gift store next door. Down the street a few blocks, the slow crawl of the ever-expanding gentrification of Detroit rolls on apace, with new apartment buildings going in and Kentucky Fried Chicken locations being remodeled to attract new clientele. The funeral home next door has been there just a few years less than the business that made the house famous, sending home generations of Detroit residents in a neighborhood that, apart from those new apartments, looks pretty much the same as it did since a famous singer used to mow the front yard. You can tour that house now, where the rooms that were used to make what the house's famous owner would later call the Sound of Young America are now museum exhibits. Every hour, trained guides take you to all corners of the house, where the owner used to plan out the careers of some of the most important artists in music history, where those artists used to eat and write songs, and in Studio A, where a large swath of the American songbook was invented wholesale from nothing but the pluck and talent of the local residents. The house at 2648 isn't just a house, of course. It's Hitsville, USA, the home of Motown Records, arguably the most important independent record company in American history. Anyone who is listening to this probably knows the broad strokes of the Motown story. Founded by Barry Gordy, a former boxer turned Jackie Wilson songwriter, Motown, a label run out of literal houses in Detroit, changed the sound and color of popular music forever. The list of artists who recorded for the label feels like a Hall of Fame roll call, and a lot of them can be identified by a single name. Smokey, Marvin, Diana, Stevie, Michael, Martha. The label had almost 80 top 10 smashes in just the 60s alone, meaning that on average, a new Motown song would hit Billboard's top 10 every seven weeks from 1960 to 1969. And while it would become gauche amongst critics, as we moved away from Motown's pop dominance, to paint their success as some kind of watering down of soul music, Motown was the first label to regularly put black artists on national television into houses across America on The Ed Sullivan Show. It wasn't a watering down. It was an integration via forceful commercial dominance, thanks to a deep and diverse roster of hitmakers. Motown's deep roster was in some ways a fluke of a lot of economic factors. During the first half of the 1900s, Detroit was one of the best destinations for black families hoping to avoid the long arm of Jim Crow to find steady work, as the big car companies were always looking for able-bodied men to pump out cars on the city's various assembly lines. Detroit's black population exploded from the 1920s until the 1940s. In a single three-year period, 50,000 black people from elsewhere in the country moved to Detroit. The children of these immigrants, these first-generation Northerners, grew up with relatively more economic stability than their parents, and went to schools with world-class music programs thanks to auto money making the schools in Detroit great, which led to a boom in vocal groups and bands in Detroit in the 50s and 60s. By the time Motown was up and running, the rumor was that if you could sing or play an instrument and showed up at the right time, you could walk into the label's Hitsville, USA offices on West Grand Boulevard and walk out with a record contract. Barry Gordy's greatest contribution to Motown was not only his legendary ear for hits and his songwriting. He applied the assembly line efficiency of the great auto plants to making hit songs. There was a quality control department that decided which songs were good enough to be released as a single. There were promotions, A&R, and PR departments in the house. They made their own album covers. They did everything on their own. 
Gordy ran Motan with a kind of monomaniacal grace that requires one man's vision to steer the ship. But he didn't do it alone. He relied on the hard work of more people than I can even begin to name here. But know that not only did Smokey Robinson used to write a lot of the early songs at Motown, he also used to be the guy mowing the lawn. Gordy especially relied on women to make his Motown dreams come true. One of the best exhibits at the Motown Museum is the $800 check that Gordy started Motown with, which came from the family fund overseen by his mom, with voting rights given to his sisters. His mom and sisters were often his toughest critics. Gordy needed to impress them in order to get the label up and running, and he had to continue to impress them as the label took off, as their concern then was just getting their money back. To their credit, if the women in Gordy's family didn't believe in his ability to translate the sound of Detroit's soul to a bigger audience, we might not be doing this podcast. Gordy also relied on a deep roster of women artists, highlighted by the first solo star on the label, Mary Wells, and the label's most commercially successful act, The Supremes. These women were often not granted as much creative freedom as artists like Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye later were, but the way that they sang the songs written by Smokey, the legendary trio Holland Dozier Holland, and others, conveyed loss, broken hearts, happiness, joy, and love in a way that hasn't been matched at a label before or since. A woman wrote the first hit single at Motown, and without money helping the label find footing, and without a deep roster of women artists, many of whom accomplished many of the firsts the label experienced, from number one singles and albums to worldwide tours, Motown might have remained a Detroit phenomenon rather than a global one. The women of Motown are the stars of this, the second season of the VMP Anthology podcast. Honoring the women of Motown was the impetus of VMP Anthology, The Women of Motown, an eight-album, nine-LP serial box set that features eight albums by women who helped write the history of Motown. Featuring albums that chart Motown's journey from local soul label to girl group powerhouse and beyond, this edition of VMP Anthology tells a story of these eight records and the women who made them. This season of the podcast took me to the Capitol Records building in Los Angeles to talk with Motown's current president, and to Detroit, where I talk with the author of the book, The Women of Motown, about the legacy of Motown in Detroit, and the sometimes untold stories of the women on the label. But it all starts at that house on West Grand Boulevard, where Barry Gordy launched the label, and the tiny studio he built in the house where most of the Motown songs you know and love were recorded. It's a place that every music fan owes a trip. You can stand where the musicians who recorded all the Motown songs you know and love stood. The story of the Motown Museum is itself a triumph of the vision of a single woman, Esther Gordy Edwards, Barry's sister who took over at Hitsville when Barry moved the label's operations to Los Angeles in the early 70s. Esther had so many people asking to just look around the house on Grand that she decided to turn it into a museum. Since 1980, it's hosted millions of people paying their respects, including Paul McCartney, who got into trouble for playing the studio piano and then paid to have it refurbished to its former glory when he found out it no longer worked. It's thanks to Esther having the wherewithal to turn the house into a museum that you can see so much of the history of Motown. The outfits, the documentation of the music, ephemera from every big star, Barry's living quarters, for yourself. The women featured in our box set made their own branches of that history and we're honored to feature them and their stories on this podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Winnestorfer, and this is VMP Anthology, The Women of Motown. 
On this, The Sound of Young America, the prologue episode that will come as your album starts shipping, I talk with Susan Whitehall, the author of the book The Women of Motown, and the author of the liner notes for our box set. Susan is also a longtime Detroit resident and was a writer and editor for Cream Magazine and the Detroit News. In this episode, Susan, who will be our main guide through the albums featured in this edition of Anthology, talks about her book, the unique Detroit circumstances that led to Motown becoming such a powerhouse, and how the label succeeded with an everybody-in-the-boat mentality. Stay tuned to the end of this episode for details about the box set and what to do with the albums that show up in blacked-out secrecy sleeves. So can we quick talk about your book, Women of Motown, which uh, we have the same title for this box set that we're doing. Um, who did you interview and how long of a process was it to get that book together? It, it wasn't a real long process. What's funny is when I was at the Detroit News, I asked Dave Marsh, who I knew from Cream Magazine, of course. I said I had all these interviews with Martha Reeves. I accumulated over the years when I was at the News. And I said, do you think there would be any book in that that I could put together on women, the Motown women? And he said, no. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Then the, the newspaper strike happened in the mid to late 90s. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, he calls me up and said, you know that Women of Motown book? You think you could do that as part of my – he was he was editing this um, – oral history of rock and roll series because I hadn't really thought of it as an oral history necessarily. I said, I could write it on my, standing on my head. If you want it as an oral history, sure, I'll do that. So I already had talked, I heard a lot of background already on a lot of these artists and I had contacts with them. So I just, you know, called up Martha and did new interviews and interviewed people about her like Mickey Stevenson and some of the males about the women. And with, um, see, Tammy, I got her sister in Philadelphia to talk. Her sister um, had an egg timer, and she said I could I could t- ask her questions, and she'd answer as long as the egg timer was, yeah. And as <laughs> a soon lot as of it pressure. Bu- yeah. I know. As soon as it buzzed, that was it. It was over. But I, I got everything I needed. You know, she was a younger sister, and Tammy moved here, you know, as a pretty young woman. And uh, she died by the time she was 25, and she signed with Motown when she was 20. So this um, Ludi, her sister, really didn't have a lot of contact with her in the, in the year she was living here. I kept trying to tell Ludi, for instance, um, she had it wrong, like where Lake Michigan was. You know, she was trying to remember where where David Ruffin's apartment was, and it's like it was right on Lake Michigan. No, it can't be. It's in Detroit. You know? <laughs> it, maybe it was by the river. No, no. So, you know, I I did, so I I actually, um, I had time because I was on strike to interview all of these people repeatedly. Kim Weston happened to be in Israel living on a kibbutz. So I I changed my long distance service so that I could have Israel as one of my countries (laughs) that I could get a discount. And I had long taped all these conversations by phone. And, um... Claudette was really helpful and really interesting. I love talking to Claudette Robinson. And in Mabel John, what a revelation she was. She was just fantastic. And that was years before I thought of writing a book about her brother, Little Willie John. 
she, she talked about Willie. She talked about Barry Gordy, the early days, and uh, just what it was like before Motown was really even a company. And, um, yeah, now the Supremes, um, they, I, I ended up talking to the, or, uh, the later Supremes, and uh, Diana was not available. I've talked to Diana and Mary many times since then, though. So I, I updated the book and I mm-hmm. included a lot of, a lot more of that stuff. Plus I had interviewed Janie Bradford. That's included in my new edition. They didn't include it in their first one because she's not a performer. But as a songwriter, she had an interesting perspective, I thought. Right, yeah. A woman wrote one of the first Motown hit singles. Yeah. Money. Yeah. Yeah. And she saw everything. And uh, Well, everybody started as a secretary. So did Martha Reeves. So did... I know. Yeah, how many labels uh, had a Sarita situation? Was the other yeah, one. Sarita was, uh, and Martha Vandella. Yeah, Martha mm-hmm. from the Vandellas. Mm-hmm. Like, how many labels uh, have that story? It feels like mm-hmm. Motown is the one that, like, literally the people working the desks in the studio could go and record. Well, like, f- people make a big deal about the fact that the spinners had to go to the airport and pick people up, and how, how could they treat them like that? You know, because at the time the temptations were hot, the spinners hadn't had a hit yet, and but that's kind of the way they operated. You know, if if you were having hits, you might not have to pick up anyone at the airport. But if you, <laughs> before until you had the hits, you were you were going to be doing that. You know, hey, we need some extra help over there. You know, mm-hmm. it was an authentic place where everybody pitched in and they'd had the big pot of chili going mm-hmm. on. And, you know, and I I think that can be lost. Right now we're talking about Motown 60 and the big expansion of the museum. And it's a very, all the corporate, you know, uh, support and uh, exhibits and da-da-da-da-da. But I like to go back to the funky origins that it's in this house on West Grand Boulevard. And, you know, people were just doing all these funky jobs around the office i mean Smokey robinson mowed the lawn for years there too <laughs> right. like he it's not was, a very big lawn luckily <laughs> yeah but yeah like that's like everybody in the boat kind of thing i don't think motown maybe survives if they don't mm-hmm. have that attitude there you know mm-hmm. so how much uh did the city of detroit play into motown's success because you mentioned in the liner notes that the first stars of Motown are really like the kids of recent immigrants to Detroit from the South in a lot of cases. Yeah. Well, I think that that gets lost as well because I think people there, there's this idea that these kids just happen to be out there and Barry Gordy found them and made them into stars. They were just raw material and he made them into stars and it could have happened anywhere. And there are several, I mean, Smokey has said Motown could have happened anywhere. Even Mary Wilson, I heard say that not long ago. The, basically, she said, well, it's, it, it could have, if you put Barry Gordy in another city, it would have happened there. And I have to disagree because, for several reasons, one of which is we did have the unique thing with the immigration with a lot of blacks coming up, a lot of country people coming up, and the music, the radio scene was so amazing. It would play all of it back then. The jazz scene was unbelievable. And that was what laid the the stage for the jazz scene was the fact that we had, um, they, they banned liquor here early on, so we had speakeasies. So you needed entertainment and speakeasies. You needed... 
you know, so there was a whole scene here of illegal drinking joints. And believe it or not, that helped the music scene because everybody wanted a band in those places. Mm -hmm. So musicians had gigs all up and down. And uh, it just never stopped with those guys. But the most important thing, I think, is that there was a world-class school system here because of the auto industry, because of all the money that had poured in from the 20s on. So that you, you talk to the Motown stars who are from here, and inevitably they all can t tell you who their high school, elementary school, junior high school music teacher was. And a lot of times it's the same, some of the same names pop up. These were amazing, amazing teachers. I mean, James Jamerson came out of um, Detroit High School. That's where he learned bass. Mm -hmm. When you think of musicians today, they go to all these fancy, you know, you know, music schools. And mm -hmm. um, they didn't. They came out. They they got out of Detroit High School. Paul Reiser is one of the most famous arrangers at Motown in Motown history. He was a, he was a 19 year old out of Cass Tech High School, and all he had was what he learned at Cass Tech, uh, how to arrange. He, did, he was doing My Girl, arranging the strings on that, based on what he learned in his high school classes at, at Cass Tech. So you have, you know, I can't stress enough, I, and I think that's been lost in our society as a whole, that, that quality public education. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was present here, and it, um, just not too far from where we're sitting, there was a place called Ford Auditorium that was torn down, unfortunately, a few years ago, right on the river. And that's where the city of Detroit, the public school system, they would have yearly um, this big competition from all the schools would get together. The best singers got to sing in front of this huge audience. And I was actually looking in the Detroit News Archive at the picture of how many people were in that auditorium. Just tons. And that's like Martha Reeves still talks about taking her first solo in front of that many people. That's like, you know, for her, that, that beats the Apollo and everything else because that was the first time as a skinny young kid, she's up there singing and she's really getting a response. So, you know, and, and it was, she had that choir background here. So it wasn't, you know, there, you hear it in Memphis and other cities like, oh, we, we got these kids who are church mm -hmm. trained and all that. Here they were more public school trained. Um, the church was important for Martha a bit, but with a lot of the kids now, it was really what they got in the public schools. And then there, there were a few, like Stevie came as an elementary school student, so he'd only had the very rudimentary music classes. Um, so when he went to Motown, they did train him, and he learned from the Funk Brothers too. Mm -hmm. Most of them came as teenagers who were already out of high school. Mm -hmm. So the story of Motown kind of is, you know, the it's sort of written as like the, the triumph of Barry Gordy that like, you know, we've talked a little bit about how it was really the community around, but he also really needed, uh, you know, women to support him in the early days, particularly that he needed a, a sign off from his mom and his sisters mm -hmm. just to get the seed money to mm -hmm. start Motown. And Esther said no at first. Esther was his hardest critic, for sure. He always said that. She was very hard to please and very skeptical of all his little dreams and all his big plans. <laughs> she wanted to know what, 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 you know, what, what was going to protect their investment and what he had to back this up with. So he, he was very, he loved 
that kind of criticism, and it, it really only made him better. And his whole philosophy of champions kind of, you know, uh, competing with each other came out of his family situation, I think, where it wasn't easy, and, the, and people weren't just telling you how great you were. It was like, no, show us, prove, prove that you're good. And uh, that's what happened. And es- Esther, I, I think I, th- I, think I uh, said something in the, the liner notes about Esther once we were coming out of an event in the parking lot. She came, uh, she whispered because we were very close to a certain male relative of hers, not Barry. Mm-hmm. But she, she motioned me closer and said, you know, my brother Barry always said, women are smarter than men. <laughs> That's a, that's why he he kept his sisters close and um, you know his sisters uh well they they did things before he did they were older and uh, mm-hmm. that's how he got into the clubs and uh, saw Billy Holiday and saw all those great acts everybody played Detroit in the forties everybody it was just an amazing scene um, that was um, he was on the scene they were. His one sister took photographs in one of the biggest nightclubs. So it was just a very glamorous, amazing thing. Because all the the big acts would play here, and they'd play here for quite a long time. There's sort of this idea kind of that, like, Mary Wells was, like, the first woman on Motown, but Claudette was in the Miracles. Yes. She was on the first group. And um, then there was Mabel John. Mabel was the first, um, well, she was a solo artist, and she... She had started out driving around with Barry's mother as sort of her assistant. When Not even driving. I think they were going door to door. They were walking. Because Barry's mother was a real entrepreneur and had a little insurance. She sold insurance policies door to door in Detroit. And, uh, and that's what he, he would take Mabel around and kind of get her to watch Sarah Vaughn or Dakota Staten and, you know, learn from this learn from what she's doing up there, how she's handling the microphone and all that. So, yeah, they they were there, and uh, there were a lot of near misses before you got to the bigger groups. Mm-hmm. When you, like, wanted to write the book, um, why was it, like, important for you to highlight the women of Motown? Um, I think because they, they hadn't been highlighted as much. Uh, most of the books you saw about Motown artists were about the about the guys, but also their um, lesser-known acts who would not maybe rate their own book, such as the Marvelettes, such as Claudette. Um, they were footnotes in other books, and I thought they needed to be splashed out a little more. And Because I think oftentimes the more interesting stories at any label are the, the lesser-known acts. Not even lesser-known, but... They're still important, but they're just not the superstars necessarily. Mm-hmm. That's where you get kind of the interesting stuff because they will let it all hang out and tell you what they really think of Diana Ross and all this. Mm-hmm. But that, yeah, it, and it was also that there. I just happened to hit it off with so many of them, and so many of them were still alive that, at the time. And uh, when like Catherine Anderson from the Marvelettes was always been here in town, she never left, always been healthy. And um, she had she wasn't touring at the time, but I just had started talking to her, and I'm like, she's got all these great stories I've never been told. And there had never been a book on the Marvelettes at that point. So um, I thought, this is like gold for a writer. This mm-hmm. is all these untold stories and her view of other Motown acts, her view of Barry Gordy, 
And so I was the first one to get Catherine down like that. Um, that they um, on on that Detroit Mosaic Theater musical that's playing in in August. They've got some of that as well. But it really was a part of the story that's so important because until Please, Mr. Postman, they were operating in the red at Motown. They just were not making money. Mm-hmm. And then Please, Mr. Postman, it's you can't overstate how important that was to getting them the the funds so that they could buy all those dresses for the Supreme so they could keep the music keep the um, studio going pay the musicians and keep plugging away mm-hmm. until boom 1964 and they started rolling in the money mm-hmm. but yeah if 1961 is when uh, please mr. postman hit so that kind of kept them alive for for quite a while so yeah the, there are all these women and their stories were bubbling under Kim Weston um, Tammy I wanted to dispel some of those myths about Tammy because mm-hmm. you know there's so much to she should be remembered for the for the important things and not for the gossip mm-hmm. so that was a that was a big reason and then thank goodness Dave finally said yes after saying no so he was a good editor. <laughs> And that's the prologue episode of this season of the Vinyl Me Please Anthology Podcast. Thanks to our guest Susan Whitehall for coming by the Detroit Foundation Hotel to talk about Motown. You'll get a lot more of my interview with Susan on this season of the podcast. As you now know, the experience for this Motown anthology is going to unfold in three episodes. Let me explain what that means and how it will work. If you're a member of our last anthology, you know that we sent you three separate shipments to complete the box set. This time, we're sending you the entire box at once and giving you a choice. When the box containing the women of Motown arrives, the first three albums, episode one, will be visible to you. The rest of the albums, episodes two and three, will be packaged in black secrecy sleeves with belly bands around them to tell you which set to open next. And here's where you have a choice to make. We encourage you to wait to open up episodes two and three and follow along with the experience we have planned for you. Yes, it will take a little bit of discipline, but we think it'll be worth it. We'll open up each episode together via live stream with me and our head of brand, Cameron Schaefer, and you'll get to hear our takes on each record and the story behind why we picked them. We think waiting to open each episode will let everyone truly slow down to appreciate the story of these albums separately. And honestly, we live in an instant gratification world. When's the last time you really waited for something? The other path available to you is to just go ahead and open all the episodes at once, see what they are, listen to them, and go on with your now more Motown-enriched life. We totally understand that some people will take this path, and we're cool with it. We just ask that you don't spoil the experience for the people who choose to be surprised. In addition, the box will have an insert with a QR code for you to scan with your phone's camera that will give you content to go along with this whole experience. We'll post a podcast to go along with each episode of the box, along with articles, performance videos from the artists, bonus mini podcast episodes, and more. If you haven't already, join our invite-only Motown Anthology community via the online forum. You should have already gotten an invite to this in your email inbox. So, once we're sure that the vast majority of people have received their box, we'll get rolling and do our first live stream breaking down episode one. We'll also post the next episode of this podcast, and new content will go up via the QR code. 
The second live stream will happen a week later and be the prompt for you to open the second episode of the box set. Again, those two albums are going to be in secrecy sleeves that prevent you from knowing what's in them until you decide to open them. You'll get another podcast and more content at this point. The third episode will follow a week later and cover the final three albums in the box set. Don't worry, you'll also get emails along the way letting you know what to do next, and we'll be posting that info in the private forum as well. The Episode 1 albums, for those who want hints, are the first LP by a solo woman in Motown history, an LP recorded in a single night to capitalize on the title track racing up the charts, and the first Mega Smash LP at Motown, as it was on the charts for more than a year. Happy guessing. And again, a final reminder. If you decide to just open all the albums at once, all the power to you. But please, don't be that person. Don't spoil it for everyone who doesn't want it to be spoiled. And with that, I sign off until episode one. Thanks for listening to the VMP Anthology podcast. This season is hosted and written by me, Andrew Winnestorfer. It's produced by Gabe Harder with assistance from Clay Carnell and Jonah Graber. Remember, listen to more Marvelettes. <laughs>